This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 32. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 32, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Good to be here today. Good to be here. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Had an, not an adventurous morning, but a uh, an exercise-filled morning on a, the bicycle that my family gave me, my wife and my kids gave me for Father's Day. I, I was kind of forced to go out and ride the bike because basically a transformer blew in the neighborhood, which the sound of it was explosive. It was, it was actually, it was kind of terrifying. And the power went out and that of course forced me to step away and get off my ass and go exercise because I couldn't do anything on the computer and I couldn't do any audio. So I went out and rode my bike and got a little fresh air and, you know, took in some nature and got my blood flowing. So I might have a little extra energy this morning. Uh, so this is all good, all good stuff. I don't know. I was in a reflective mode. I, I've, you know, not to bring everybody down, but I've lost a couple people recently. Um, a friend, a former boss from a pro audio company, Ron Timmons over at Audio Images in San Francisco. Many, many years ago, I worked for Audio Images and Ron Timmons, really good guy. Those of you who uh, live in the Bay Area and who've shopped at uh, Audio Images, it's a cool, cool little quirky place. And Ron Timmons was always a part of that. And as a boss, he was a very, very generous guy, really, really sweet person. So Ron unfortunately died at uh, 64. And um, my friend Dave Camp up in Portland, Oregon, fantastic, talented guy, uh, 47 years old, died of stomach cancer. So I'm, I'm in a reflective mode and a uh, just kind of, you know, thinking about stuff and taking life in and taking recording in and just really having a deeper appreciation for things, I guess, this week, just because of uh, the loss of some fantastic people. So just a little thing to say to you, just to say, you know, life is short. Take it all in and uh, enjoy it. Really enjoy it. Don't don't sweat the small stuff. And get some exercise too. We got to get off of our asses, guys and gals. I mean, we can't just sit on our asses all the time. So if you exercise, good for you. Do that more because, uh, you know, it's good to stick around and see what great things come our way. So what else? Uh, I have a fantastic guest on today talking about taking it all in. Miles Boyson is on today and Miles is a chef. No, he's not a chef. I'm joking. Of course, it's the Working Class Audio Podcast. What do you think he does? He, well, according to his website, it says, uh, Miles Boyson, super genius and humble servant. Recording and mastering engineer, just working with some interesting, interesting people like Kronos Quartet and um, Fred Frith and uh, Splatter Trio, which was uh, a band of his. He was also a member of Clubfoot Orchestra. He runs Gorilla Recording in Oakland, California, and he got he came to the Bay Area long before I did. And I've always known his name, and he was always like you know this kind of uh, wizard like character in my mind that had this studio and I've always known about him. And then I became friends with him and that kind of demystified the, the wizard aspect of it. But I still felt like, wow, this guy's like, this guy has a big brain and he's really cool and he does a lot of cool work. So I couldn't, I can't possibly tell you everything he's done. So I'm going to in, encourage you to go to his website, milesboyson.com. And that's Miles, M-Y-L-E-S-B-O-I. 
B-O-Y-S-E-N, milesboyson.com. Yeah, go over there and just take a look at his uh, his biography, which is pretty impressive, and just all the stuff that he does. And he, he's also a you know, former journalist. He wrote for Electronic Musician for a period of time, which we talk about in our interview here. So uh, that's coming up here. So let's talk about Sonarworks. So I've been um, playing around with it. I, I, and I, I hesitate to say playing around with it. I've been utilizing, I, the better word is utilizing. I've been utilizing the Sonarworks software. I downloaded the demo, like I told you. I borrowed the measurement mic from Scott Evans. And I have just been running it through its paces. And essentially, you know, you measure your room and then you take that measurement and you apply it to a plugin that you then run in your Pro Tools, you know, or or your DAW, whatever your DAW is. In my case, Pro Tools 10. I'm going to just tell you right now, I am going to throw my reputation behind it, my my opinion behind it. I really think I'm not going to use dramatic words, but I'm just going to say that I think that this software could really change uh, the mixing and listening environment for many of us who think we're in rooms that we know. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to deny that many many of you out there know your rooms and you know the anomalies in your room, and you generally, you know, hone it down to like I've heard people say. Oh yeah, my room's got a little bump around such and such K or Hertz or whatever. And I, you know, I was in that camp. I thought, oh yeah, there's there's a little bump in this room, you know, probably 200, 300 Hertz. No big deal. And maybe a little bit of, you know, cancellation going on at the at the mix position. So, you know, I moved the speakers around, tweaked things, listened, thought I really, really knew it. Well, when I ran the Sonarworks software, man, it was like and I and I posted a thing on Facebook about it. Maybe I posted it on my personal page, but um, or no, I did it on my production page. I'm Matt Boudreau, mixer engineer, blah 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 blah, on that Facebook page. Anyways, I uh, I posted something on there, and and essentially it was like going to the doctor. Or you could even say it was like going to the dentist. Let's say you haven't been to the dentist in ages, and then you go there and you think, ah, you know, I might have a, I might have a cat, you know, I might have one cavity, because you know. I ate a lot of sugar or whatever. And, and then the dentist says, well, the bad news is you've got six cavities, but the good news is we can pull them all out today and everything will be fine. Or we can cap them all, whatever. That's essentially what doing this software was like. I'll, I'll post a picture of the before and the after of what my room looked like. And it was shocking. It really was. So I shot the room. And then I ended up changing the room around. I shot it again and tried to make some improvements, putting a cloud over the mix position. And lo and behold, I discovered through shooting the room that that didn't make a damn bit of difference. So I pulled the cloud down because it was kind of goofy looking. So I pulled it down and now I am at a point where, you know, I could probably make some other changes in the room. But the point is, is that the Sonarworks software, the way it works is it creates an EQ curve based on the problems, the, the, the efficiencies or inefficiencies in your listening environment. And then it creates a flat curve out of that. I, I did it and I have been mixing and I sent some mixes out to some clients. The clients came back and they were like, yeah, great tones, great tones. Um, and, but they mentioned like itsy bitsy things that had to do per- with performance issues, not mix issues. And I said, well, what about the mix? Do we need to change the mix? And they're like, no. 
No, I don't think we do. I think the mix is great. It's translating to everything we play it on. And I was just in total shock. Now, that just may be a no-brainer situation for for many of you thinking, well, duh, if you have a flat response, you know, you're going to make better decisions. I mean, that is essentially what we're shooting for. But I think kind of in the... Um, in the context of recording, sometimes we just kind of jump in with both feet. With I'm going to set my speakers up in my DAW and put some, you know, some packing blankets or some acoustic treatment up, and I'm just going to dive in. And then, you know, there's that camp of folks, and I fell in that camp with within my room. And then, you know, there are those, and I've been one of these as well, where I've hired guys like Bob Hodis, an acoustician, to come and shoot a room and properly set it up and have you move speakers and acoustic treatments until you get as flat a response as you can. Now, I have been in that position before, so I knew how that worked, but not everybody does. And also, not everybody can afford to hire somebody like Bob. Bob's a great guy, and he's very smart. But if you are in a position to where you can't hire an acoustician, uh, or you, you don't want to, and you'd like a simpler solution that works for you economically, I'm going to just endorse this and just say, yes, this, this product can help you. So check it out. You may listen, you may try it out and go, nah, this is bullshit. This doesn't work for me. And if so, that's fine. There's a demo. You can try it out. You can get a sense of how it works. There's a speaker uh, component to it. There's a headphone component to it. You can, you can do all your research on it. I'm not going to give you the whole, like, you know, SonarWorks sales line, but I liked it so much. I contacted them and I somehow I convinced them. I was like, hey guys, you should advertise on my site because you have a great product and more people should know about it. And, you know, my listeners could really benefit from this. So the good part of that conversation that came out in me approaching them is they've come up with a deal. I'm looking up, I'm just kind of, I forgot the, the code, but I have a code to save you some money on this. So check this out. Okay, so the guy, the guys over at uh, over at Sonarworks uh, have said, what does it say here? The first ten users to quote this code WCA in capitals, lowercase works. So WCA works at the checkout on their website will get. If you're in the U.S., you'll get thirty three dollars and thirty three cents off your order, and if you know you're in uh, Europe, you will get thirty three. 3333 in euros off on your uh, on the speaker calibration software. So so if you're into it, check it out and uh, you're going to see their banner on the site cuz I dig them. I did the, I think what they're doing is cool. Also we're, you know, they're going to be our first advertiser. Now, let me be clear about something. I'm not sitting here giving you the the spiel on this because they're advertising. I would have done that anyway, but I've convinced them to advertise as well, which is cool. So in full disclosure, that's what's going on. I want you. I want to be clear about that with you. So there it is. You're going to see their advertising on the site. It'll remind you. Make sure that you use, if you're one of the first 10 people, that, and maybe I can get them to extend this offer to more of you. I hope I can. Remember, WCA works at the checkout process, and it's WCA in capitals and works in lowercase, and it's all one word. I believe it's, I believe it's case sensitive. So there we go. So check it out. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, let's get on over to my interview with Miles Boyson. I went over to Gorilla Recording in Oakland. So here it is, Miles Boyson on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me here. So for the listener, we're, we're at Miles' studio, Gorilla Recording in Oakland. 
which he shares with the other engineer, uh, Bart Thurber, who calls the studio House of Faith when he's here. That's right. I've been in that situation in the past where you've had different engineers sharing a studio space and everybody calling it a different thing. It's all about the branding. Branding Matt. of the studio. That's right. <laughs> it's all about not being able to find that mic that you really want when you come in in the morning to be interviewed for a podcast because your partner put it somewhere and you can't find it. That's right. Or they took it home or lent <laughs> it out. Or So this space that we're in, how long have you been here? I started working here in... Uh, 93, the studio was started by a guy named Josh Heller. He kind of just did it. He was in a band. Rogue Elephant was his band. Okay. And he kind of started it just as a as a project, and he had a lot of construction skills, so he did all the all the build out. Pretty much everything that's that's here as far as a physical layout, he did. Uh, and then he went to uh, he kind of got tired of Oakland or something, and he went to uh, San Francisco and started Division Hi-Fi uh, with Scott Salter and... Uh, and Desmond. Desmond. Desmond Shea. Yeah. Were over there, and then uh, I think they got kicked out in the big tech boom of 2008. Yeah. Which turned into the tech bust of 2009. And he's been in L.A. since then. But, but uh, I have to give Joshua Hiller a lot of credit for building this place and then basically turning it over to Bart Thurber and I when we had started working here as independent engineers and he said oh, okay yeah you guys you know just take it over and pay for this and that so have you been you've been renting since that time yeah wow that's that's a long-term relationship with a landlord the landlord is incredible really great landlord and very easy terms because the the space up here, we're on the, the second floor of an industrial building, and the space is kind of odd. It would be a tough space to rent, maybe not in today's market. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I think if, if the landlord were to rent to normal, sane people, probably they would just gut this whole top floor and make it into a usable space. It's, just a, it's a really odd layout. Well, all these little tiny rooms. It used to be an office building, and it was a contractor's business, which uh -huh. is why we have a, a vault there. <laughs> it's a one-hour rated fire safe <laughs> where they kept blueprints. Okay. And then I'm in the boss's office, which has this cool kind of louvered glass thing that looks like a something out of a Sam Spade movie, you know, detective yeah. movie. <laughs> detective so Boyson. Yeah. It's a weird space, and there's a kitchen, and there's always, you know, there's three other guys who live here, and they're usually running around, you know, with their shirts off and stuff. So oh, there are three other people that yeah. live here? Oh, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, they're usually not here all the time, but they're great. They're really happy to live here at the studio, and somehow we've we've kept this very anarchic relationship going for 22 years now here. So really, I mean, you're... You're a low maintenance tenant for the landlord. Yeah, yeah, low and, maintenance and low rent. <laughs> so, I mean, would you say that to other others who are looking to be in the studio business, God save them, first of all, that low maintenance relationship can kind of help. Like, if you're not the squeaky wheel all the time, complaining about every single thing, and oh, absolutely. I mean, there's kind of a bonus for that landlord. It's like the rent's paid. You're reliable. Yes, and and in the time that we've been here, 
I think we've had probably six or seven tenants come and go downstairs, which is more of a, it's like a raw industrial space that probably would be perfect for some young person to start a recording studio. <laughs> they don't get to while we're here. Right. <clears throat> Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're asking, if we're talking about, you know, what would my advice be to a young person starting a studio today? Number one, I would say, don't try to do it in the Bay area. Cause if you can find a place that would be cheap enough, you're probably going to get kicked out in a couple of years. Especially now it's a very scary thing. Um, we're obviously aware that, you know, and I think many people are aware in the recording world that John Vanderslice is in the process of building a new studio and it's probably you know, just a matter of time before tiny telephone, the regular tiny telephone at some point here, I think it's, it's, it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to disappear. Oh, the one in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, if things keep going the way they're going in San Francisco, would you, <clears throat> I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to spread a rumor here, but I'm just saying that John's very smart to get, to have, start building somewhere else instead of coming, you know, coming to work one day to discover that he's got a notice that his landlord wants to sell for a gazillion dollars. I think that's a pretty realistic appraisal of the situation, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I've been over there. It's kind of a, the space in San Francisco is is pretty funky, as I I recall. I mean, just the, the area around there, the studio is very nice. But yeah, at some point, I mean, probably they're just going to want to tear down that whole complex which is something that's has also happened to a, a number of other studios that i've known about in san francisco yeah so i mean unless you own it's really it's a challenge yeah well yeah if someone has the ability to own their building great you know if you're in your 20s and you have enough money to to buy a building to buy a building of course some buildings in you know some other cities are considerably cheaper we're just you know we're, we live in a bubble in many ways here in the Bay Area, and one of them is this crazy real estate bubble that just doesn't seem to ever stop. Well, and when it does stop, it's going to be a big, hard stop. It's going to be a painful <laughs> stop. Yeah. And maybe it'll be a little easier to, to drive up 880 soon, but we'll see. Let's talk about the studio and... Let's talk about just the business of the studio. Like, okay. What, You're a little off mic there, man. Am stay I? On your, stay on your mic. I'll stay, stay on my mic. <laughs> Don't be like a saxophone player. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. What, uh, what's your, what's your, your business like in terms of, first of all, what kind of acts do you traditionally record? Who comes to you? These days, it's a, it's a real mix. When I first came to the Bay Area in 1984, being a musician who's kind of in the avant-garde, experimental, improv, scronk world, I I fell in with a lot of those people. And I was in a group called the Splatter Trio that some people might know, and, and a little later on the Clubfoot Orchestra. So I ended up working with a, a lot of people in that scene, a lot of people from Mills College, Rova Sax Quartet, and associated groups. And, you know, people who are generally doing experimental stuff and some some jazz, some more mainstream jazz. And then as I was here for a while, I got hooked up with a blues label and ended up recording most of the local blues people, a lot of singer-songwriters, not so many rock bands, mm -hmm. um, and 
a lot of times when you know if a rock band comes around i'll just say you know go work with my partner bart thurber because he's great and he charges less than i do and usually they'll they'll bite on that hook <laughs> uh so yeah over the years you know it's it's pretty much it's broadened out a lot and i still have a lot of clients that you know have been here from the from the beginning more from the you know creative jazz music improv world the rova guys fred frith who i've had a really good relationship with over the years john shot philip greenleaf and a lot of people who've have been here you know for 20 years coming and going do your clients come mostly as a result of of your musical interactions out in the world or do they come just because they've heard about you primarily as record as a recording engineer or I, I guess for people that don't know me, I guess it's it's just a matter of reputation. People have worked here, and they seem to think that I was okay to work with. And <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't start smoking pot at ten o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's good to know. It would be good for me to know why people want to work with me. I'm glad that they do. I mean, do you actively market you or the studio, or does it just no. kind of naturally come to you? No. This this year, earlier in the year, things got pretty slow, and then at that point, I'm you know I'm on Facebook and putting out little notes saying, "Hey, I'm here," you know, "Don't forget about me," or <laughs> "Here's something interesting I did today." And so I've just recently I've been doing a little bit of the social media stuff, and then about a month ago, it's it's picked up to the point where I don't have time to do any of that stuff anymore. Uh, and I've never really advertised. I think in the Maybe in like 95 or 96, I think I put out an ad in, in BAM magazine. Uh, Remember that? Yeah, very much so. And I got a kind of like a southern rock band that uh, I think they, they brought in like as much alcohol as they brought in gear. And uh, they were a little strange to work with. And at that point I thought, yeah, you know, I'm not going to advertise anymore. <laughs> I'm just going to try to make good recordings and make myself happy and, and cross my fingers and hope for the best. And that was 20 years ago and in many ways here. those those recordings are the marketing and the the style of bands probably attracts similar styles that you're more comfortable working with yeah that's true i mean i i really enjoy working with stuff that's a little bit out of my comfort zone like i've done uh, a few kind of balkan east european greek fusion records that i really enjoy even though that's not musically that's not my scene i i love listening to it mm -hmm. but i i think really that the thing that that brings people to a particular studio really is having a relationship with the engineer or having someone who who recommends that i always feel like you know if i was gonna hire someone to make a record i would want to go to the studio talk to the engineer and really really listen to the stuff that they had done and kind of pick their brain and that happens very 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 rarely mm -hmm. you know i don't think people really shop around it's like you know someone has heard uh, or no knows a band that you've worked with and they say oh you know matt's really good he's very musical and he'll you know he'll do a drum part on your record if you need it or something like that and they'll mm -hmm. say oh okay he seems like a good guy <laughs> And then, I mean, is that your experience? Some, yeah. A lot of my experiences come from start with a recommendation, and then I do a record with somebody, and then they go, okay, we're ready for the next record. And I end up doing a lot of repeat records that yeah. way. 
But well, that means you're doing something right. I guess I'm doing something right. But it <laughs> is interesting though how that works because if you just base your decision on what something sounds like, if like if a band listens to a record I've done, I, I think that what some bands don't take into consideration is is that some of what they're hearing is the result of that band's decision making overriding anything I would choose to do. So there may be something on there they don't like that I had nothing to do with or something they do like that I had nothing to do with. It was based on, you know, the band really kind of driving the train. Yeah, I mean, I think this this is a a really good point for a a program such as this. And and something I'm always telling people about is shop around, talk to people, go, you know, check out some some stuff and the thing is you i think you have to listen to more than one thing that an engineer has done because most people have done you know they've done something that's gotten a little bit of notoriety but if you listen to to three or four things that they've done then you can start to hear it's like oh okay everything is always in tune or this person always uses a room mic in a way that i like <laughs> or yeah it sounds nice and glossy or everything they do has a a really nice clear low end that's not overhyped or you know or whatever and i i wish more people would would do that i mean i've had a couple people come to me who didn't know me and just got a recommendation they really grilled me you know they said okay i'm i'm thinking about recording on analog tell me what are the really important differences between recording on pro tools and recording on analog and, you know, do you think we should have everyone in the same room? Should people wear headphones? Should people be isolated? How much should be overdubbed? And I love doing doing stuff like that and being able to, to educate people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's – obviously, each band has its own set of sensibilities. I would almost tell – you know, I think if bands come to me and say, you know, why should we work with you? I'd, I think I would just be like, well, um, maybe I should let you talk to some of the bands I've worked with and – they can give you the honest truth of why they keep coming back to me and or why they hate me or why they like me or so <laughs> I think I don't know how it is for you but and I and I'm not really sure of your demeanor in the studio I generally I think most of us try to keep things you know cool and and peaceful and but it's it's interesting trying to balance the different like if you have a band like I I just worked with a band over the over the weekend and just trying to balance all the different personalities uh, when those personalities aren't even really, I mean, they're hardly aware of one another in the band, you know. I mean, they're, they're aware, but I mean, they just, one by one, they just keep coming in asking questions that may be uh, related to, may or may not be related to, you know, like if the bass player comes in, aren't we going to be doing such and such in the next hour? Or I need to do this. When you know maybe the singer has a different agenda or the guitar player has a different agenda, it's and at some point, <laughs> I think there's a few times over the week, and I just had to like I kept finding myself repeating, you know, things. Like, oh yeah. Hey guys, remember here's the plan. You want to accomplish this goal, and I'm trying to make sure that happens. But all of you keep kind of diverting away from the common goal. Do you, how is your like? How do you handle things like that with bands in the studio? What's your I mean, do you, are you a good diplomat or are you, do you just try to be neutral about stuff or go whatever? Or? You know, I, I don't like to be neutral about stuff because one, one of the experiences that I had when 
I moved here in the Bay Area in uh, 84, and I think in about 86 or 87, I was recording with a band with a kind of a well-known independent engineer in San Francisco who was so neutral about everything. I mean, I think he probably hated our music because <laughs> it was pretty weird, kind of screechy, scronky music. But he was just so neutral and, and had this, you know, very passive engineer attitude that it just drove me crazy. Like he wouldn't give any feedback. I was like, oh, it sounds okay. You want to do another one or not? So that and and that would that was a very big motivating factor in me wanting to become a professional engineer. Even though you know, I, at that point, I I had had a lot of experience and had actually been teaching recording when I was in college in the late seventies. So, and I had bounced around the country trying to get engineering jobs and basically failed. But so this this experience really made me think and think, okay, yeah, I actually could be an engineer and I, a professional engineer, and I don't want to be like this. I want to give people feedback and I want to get involved and kind of get my hands dirty with, with the music at the risk maybe of sometimes seeming like I'm taking over or something. So I'm very, always very sensitive of this mm -hmm. stuff and, and the interpersonal dynamics and especially if, if I'm working with a band that I don't know, what I'm doing in the first hour is to to see, okay, well, who is really in charge of this band? Who's and the alpha dog in this band? Who's the alpha dog? And do they have the experience to really pull it off in a manner that's going to work for me? And if so, I let them do it. And if they don't, then you have, you have to be a little bit more of a director. I th yeah, I think the word... The word director is a pretty, pretty apt one. And, you know, I, I, I like to explain to people what their options are and say, yeah, okay, we can do it this way. We can do it that way. It's going to take this long if we do it, you know, the way you want to do it. It's going to take this long if we do it the way that I want to do it. What do you think? And, you know, kind of lay it out for people and let them make those sort of decisions. But I usually have a pretty good idea of what's, what's going to work, at least as far as a flow, you know, mm -hmm. not... I'm not always telling people what to play. Sometimes I am. <laughs> it's interesting that it's a common it's a common experience for I think a lot of us that started out, you know, with the bad experience with the shitty engineer or the engineer that just, you know, pissed you off or that and that seems to motivate a lot of people to get in and say, "Well, I can do this better. I can be nicer, I can be more pro, I can offer more advice." And it seems that in regards to your your experience, the, the guy being so neutral, that just seems, I don't know, uh, just in contrast to that, the, I got an email uh, yesterday from a guitar player in the band I just got through working with. And he just said, uh, hey, I know that there was a lot of tension and over the weekend in an effort to get everything done and nobody ever stopped to uh, say this. So I'll just say it now. Thank you so much for really caring and really keeping us on track to get to meet our goals. Because if you hadn't, we never would have got done what we got done. And, yeah. Oh, that's nice. And that made me just go, oh, God, thank God. Because, <laughs> you know, there was a few moments there where 
and I'm sure you've experienced this, where you, you kind of push people a little bit and go, no, actually, guitar player, you're not playing with the drummer, and I can either chop you up and edit you to make it work, or you can do it right now. Certainly. And they and when you I think when you when you put it that way and Michael Beinhorn talked about that in his interview, uh, it's an experience he had in a and he writes about in his new book, uh, saying basically you know a similar thing like you can do it right now or I can chop you up like a Britney Spears record or something and yeah that's that that makes people go oh okay and they they kind of I don't want to say man up they musician up yeah the musician steps forward so. Yeah, and when you tell people, oh, and by the way, the amount of chopping that I'm going to have to do uh, is going to take about two hours, so that's going to cost you 150 bucks, or you can do another take and save 150 bucks. What do you think? Yeah, do you want to <laughs> spend three minutes now trying to get it right, or do you want me to spend two hours to make it? I, right? I would probably put it a little nicer than that, but just between <laughs> you and I, you know, because we've been there. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think w what you can learn from this discussion is is that you really have to be adept at sizing people up when you're working with people that you don't know. When you're working with people that you do know, maybe you've worked with them before, or they've, you know them personally, or they've come through a strong recommendation, then they're coming to you with their trust. And that's a totally different thing from working with a band that you don't know, in my experience. How does that differ for you? Well, I, I've been fortunate enough mainly to work with bands that had a good recommendation or a good experience with me. So they came in trusting that I was going to do my job the best way that I could. And I've worked with some bands and including people that I actually knew who, who, you know, came in with a little bit more of a skeptical attitude or, you know, maybe someone who they read a few recording magazines and, and they think that they know, you know, the best way to to mic a drum kit and they sometimes can be a little rigid mm -hmm. about that stuff uh and in that case hopefully if i'm uh if i'm in a charitable mood i'll say okay you know we can we can try it your way we can try it my way how about if we try it my way first and we'll just see what you think and if they don't like it then i'll i'll be happy to change it um in the studio, when when those situations come up, and that that I think that comes up probably more now than maybe it used to. Like oh, in, definitely in the seventies or in the eighties, definitely, and in mastering too. Oh. Get that a lot now. Really, I always find it fascinating. And if you compare it to any other world, um, the listeners know kitchen analogies are my favorite. It's like, would you ever step into the kitchen and you know say, oh, you know, I've watched a couple. Um, I've watched, I've watched a couple of uh, cooking shows on the cooking channel, and I know that you probably shouldn't put that much salt in my meal. Yeah. Like, really? Okay. And I, I'm always thrown by that. That's a, yeah. Kitchen is a good analogy. So. Brain surgery is more my, <laughs> more my thing. It's like, yeah, do you really want to use that big of a suture right, right there on the, uh, you know, the corpus callosum? I don't know. I wouldn't. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't be sticking the scalpel into my brain right there. It's frustrating too because I figure it's like I mean, just like musicians, we don't all we don't all do the the engineering differences between say just you and I. You approach things differently than I would, but ultimately we're trying to get roughly similar results. And 
you'd think that a band coming in, especially to someone like you who has been at it for a long time, has been in this space for a long time and knows it, knows his gear, would maybe have a little humility to step aside and go, oh, I've read a few things, but what do you, how do you do it? But sometimes that, I'm just floored that that humility doesn't exist. But they're like, oh, I, you know, I read that you got to do this kind of mic setup and that's what we're going to do this record on. So do you just bite your tongue and go, okay, how do you choose your battles of like where, where you say, well, young whippersnapper, 20-year-old yeah. <laughs> drummer with very little experience, more opinions than experience. Oh, yeah, that uh, reminds me of a 20-year-old drummer that I worked with not too long ago <laughs> who was kind of that way. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like the, uh, the personality flaws I have, which I've learned about in therapy, many, many of those are really ideal for the job that I have of being very non-confrontational, being quite a, kind of, you know, a little on the quiet side, not, not a big personality, not always sticking up for myself, even if I know that I'm right. Those sort of things are really just perfect for an audio engineer because <laughs> it means you can get along with a lot of different people. And, and in, you know, in the case that you describe, which I want to emphasize doesn't happen to me that often because I'm really, really lucky to work with people that I know and, you know, great, great musicians and, and people who do actually appreciate the art and craft of engineering. But sometimes it happens and, you know, I, I guess I say to myself, well, this person's only going to be here for today. And how bad would it be to let them have it be the way that they want? Mm -hmm. And maybe it, maybe be happy, you know. It's not like it's going to sound horrible. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to be the way that I would do it. And I get to make a lot of recordings exactly the way that I want to. So that makes it a little easier to kind of bite your tongue sometimes that with, with the benefit of, you know, having the session flow a little bit better and, and maybe even having the person like you at the end of the day. And then maybe they'll give in and let you try your idea. Maybe next time, yeah. Maybe next if time. If they come back, maybe next time they will. So, yeah, I mean, that's something that's kind of more personal to me. It's like I play in, you know, like six or seven different bands. So if, if one of those bands doesn't completely feed my soul, I can just do what I do. And I'll, I can feed that part of my soul in another band. Or if, you know, if today's session doesn't go to my liking, the one next Wednesday is going to be great. So hmm. I can kind of let those things go. You, you talk about your non-confrontational approach. Is it that you just don't, like, want to join that battle for, the you know, the 20-year-old drummer who wants to mic the snare in a particular way that you find absurd? Or is it that you you're just like, not really that passionate about that that particular you know qu item in question at the time. I just don't like to get in fights if it's yeah. not about something that's that's actually really important. What if <laughs> what if that? Okay, so let's let's take a scenario. Let's say twenty year old drum. I know we just keep picking on twenty year old drummers. Twenty year old famous drummer. Okay, <laughs> so let's say twenty year old famous drummer decides that. Um, they want to mic the snare or the hi-hat in a particular way 
and you choose not to battle with them over it, and you come in, and the band's playing, and you're pulling up the faders, and you realize this is not going to work. This is going to sound like shit. So, do you bring it up, or do you, or do you just play it back and go, "What do we think?" Yeah, I would be more of the play it back and tell me what you think camp. Yeah, and if they like it, okay. I mean, I you know I've also learned a lot. That way, because I have worked with a lot of really unusual instruments. I mean, from, you know, totally wacky, homemade, one-of-a-kind instruments, you know, made out of kelp and <laughs> things like that. And uh, But also, you know, like a Japanese shakuhachi flute or a um, Chinese, you know, chin zither or something like that, where, I mean, I don't know, and, and the person playing it you know i have to give them credit for spending you know probably 10 15 20 or more years learning that instrument and with their head you know just in the the right place to make it sound great so i have in those cases i have to respect what that person says and and if someone comes in with some instrument that i haven't worked with i'll usually say well how do you like to mic this and if i don't have a better idea i'll I'll just do it the way that they tell me, and usually it sounds great. But that's a little different than making a drum kit, which is something I've done a thousand times. Yeah. And the thing about me, too, is I almost always mic a drum kit the same way. I have mics that I've, you know, hand-picked, and I always put them in the same place, and they always sound great. But it's okay to change it up, Yeah, too. If it sounds like shit, that's a different thing. Transitioning a little bit, there's pros and cons to owning your own studio as opposed to being, you know, a freelancer. Um, obviously, you know, you consistently can come to work every day and have the same setup and a reliable setup that you know. What are some of the cons of owning a studio? What, what are some of the things that sometimes you say, Ugh. Oh, man. When something breaks, like if your mixing board goes down, that's a big con. Mm. <laughs> That is a big problem. And, it, you know, it kind of goes back to the, the thing of being a business owner. It's like when something really goes wrong, like, you know, the brain of your studio <laughs> shuts down, there's no one to blame it on. And, you know, you, may, you might be in the middle of a big deadline project or, you know, who knows. Maybe it's, maybe it's okay and it's a little thing you can fix or maybe it's going to take two weeks and you have to reschedule everything in your calendar for two weeks and end up paying God knows how much money to get it fixed and basically disrupt your entire life to get this little brain working again. <laughs> it sounds like you're, you're not one who's, uh, you're not a tech oriented person that you'd pop open the board and solder something back into place. No, I, I leave that for the experts. Okay. I don't sniff solder anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So equipment, equipment maintenance. So is it something that as the calamities happen, like mixing boards going down, do you try to take preventative measures to prevent that from happening? Like spare power supplies or? Oh yeah. I've got spare everything. Well, before the, the new board that we put in, we had, yeah, two boards, two power supplies. I have uh, two MS-16, one-inch 16-track tape machines, and a parts machine. So a lot of things are covered. <laughs> I encountered the, you know, the rent just steadily going up every year. Has it, has it done that for you, or does your landlord give you, you know, 
breaks here and there. Oh, he does. Yeah, he just does cost of living increases, which are pretty reasonable. I mean, we're we're in a part of Oakland that is mainly um, really old, huge houses that have like six families living in them and auto repair body shops and Vietnamese sandwich stores. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a... bubble bubble tea and and bon mi sandwiches. So the when I started here, the rent was pretty reasonable, and it has continued to be very reasonable. Thank you, Dick Hogren, most amazing landlord ever. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. I mean, to the to the young or to the person who thinks that they want to s- start a studio, is it uh, is it best to seek out studios in semi-industrial areas? I mean, we are kind of in an, an not a totally industrial area because I do see houses around. Yeah, it's it's mixed industrial and residential. Um, well, to that person, number one, don't start a studio. You're insane. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that already. So, but but. It, Define that for a sec. You're not going to listen to me. Yeah. Why? Like, why? Why would you not start a studio? Just, I mean, I know, but for the audience, like, if you love it, go ahead and do it. I mean, if you're thinking about doing it as a job, I, I don't know, but yeah, people are going to do what they want to do. So, don't listen to me. I just think it's a really. This would be a really hard time to be opening a, a studio. Like the other day, if you're looking at it from a business standpoint mm-hmm. it really it doesn't make a lot of sense i mean if you're successful the hours are really long a lot of sitting a lot of client skills that you have no idea about when you get started and kind of the way the way that i see a lot of the studio business going is you have to have a lot of really groovy gear to get people to want with you to want to work with you if if you don't already have a reputation and mm-hmm. you're just kind of coming in as as the new kid on the block you have to have a lot of of really attractive bells and whistles and groovy stuff and vintage video games and a great big fancy english board with lots of faders because that's that's what the competition is about three weeks ago, I was working at uh, Fantasy Studio in Berkeley, which is, for those of you that you don't know, is I think the only old school studio that's left in the East Bay at this point. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but of that, you know, are you, of are that, you thinking of, of that like seventies? It's been around since the seventies, oh, yeah, and is a really fancy, beautiful studio that's everything you would expect a studio to be from watching, you know, music, biography, yeah. films. <laughs> I would agree with you. I think that that is one of the old, uh, oldest school. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of the only places. old guard studio that, that I know of in the East Bay. Um, in their heyday, I think they, their rate was about $2,000 a day. And now you can get in there for about seven fifty a day. I think you know around seventy five bucks an hour. So they're not charging more; they're they're charging less. I mean, admittedly, you know, someone owns the building, and probably their rent isn't going up. But just to just to stay in business at a time when you know a lot of the major studios and even small, really nice studios have folded, you can't be raising your rates. You know, I have, I 
don't even know when the last time that I raised my rates was. I'm sure it's been. Are you comfortable 10 years. talking about your rate? Sure, totally. Yeah, what is your rate? Uh, I charge 16 hour to work in the studio, uh, 16 hour for mastering on projects that I've recorded, and 75 an hour mastering projects that I didn't record. And, uh, you know, that's no hidden charges. You know, I don't do any kind of flim-flam deals so if somebody <laughs> like said secret deals that's just i just charge everyone the same because it's because i don't have to remember what kind of a deal i gave to somebody and it's it's mm. a pretty good deal seems like a fairly common rate uh around the bay area yeah i think you know 40 to 60 seems to be kind of the, the going right now hmm. and i you know i'm going to be in the business for a few more years cross my fingers uh and I don't anticipate that I'm going to be able to raise my rates. Maybe for mastering, I could get away with it because my mastering rates are pretty cheap. But so you know, I'm I'm kind of locked in. I don't know what it's like for you, but I'll go cheaper if somebody's like, you know, hey, we need to book a studio day, you know, at a studio. Then I'm like, all right, I'll just charge you a day rate and. And they book me, you know, like I generally have been charging like 65 an hour if somebody just wants to book me for a few hours. But if somebody wants to book me for a day, I've been going like four or 500. And if I do five, you know, I'll bring an assistant in, give them a hundred bucks for the day. You know, somebody who's young and up and coming and wants to learn. But, you know, I, I tend to drop the rate when we're doing like a whole, whole day kind of a situation. Cause I figure yeah. like, okay, I can block out the whole day. I'm going to make this much. But when on those days where it's like, I could be here an hour or I could be here five hours. I just don't know. So that's when I go the hourly, hourly route. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense, I think. Um, and then of course, some studios, you know, they'll have, you know, the studio charge and then they'll have the engineer charge. When it comes to like, if you're going to book, let's say you're going to book Tiny Telephone, you you book John's rate and then, you know, for the studio and then you got to pick an engineer and the engineers that he's always had listed, or at least the rates for the engineers have always been ridiculously cheap. Yeah. Like I can't see working 200, 250 bucks for a day. No. That just... Me neither. I, I mean... <laughs> I mean, especially someone like you who has a shit ton of experience. I mean, you know, my excuse is I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to spend time away from my family and kids, that combined with my experience, I'm not going to work that cheap. And you don't, you don't have kids, but you have a shit ton more experience than I do. <laughs> so I, I just don't understand how people can do that and make a living in the Bay Area. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, when, when you're on the younger side of things... And you have a chance to work at a, you know, happening studio like Tiny Telephone. That's probably pretty attractive. But it's, I don't think it's going to be sustainable in the, the long run. You know, I mean, it's hard to look at having a career of, you know, making 200 or 250 a day as, as an engineer and working 12-hour days. <laughs> you can't do that forever. Or I, I couldn't do it forever. I couldn't maybe, do it forever. Maybe some people can. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, um so we're here in your control room and we're surrounded by what appears to be, you know, gear that you accumulated over the course of years. There's some, there's some inexpensive stuff. There's some very high end stuff as well. What's noticeable if I think if you're walking into a, a fairly uh, typical recording studio in today's world 
when I walked in, the first thing that caught my attention was, is there was no computer that became, that was the centerpiece. It yes. was the board and the tape machine. And then when we were going to record this interview, you actually had to bring in the laptop and, you know, the digi interface. And um, you obviously focus a lot of recording in analog on one inch, one inch tape. That's right. 16 track. Uh, this Tascam machine sitting here, this MS, MS-16? MS-16. Is that just a conscious decision because it's it's more economical for you because you, you own the tape machine outright and you understand it and you're tired of chasing the computer world of recording or are there other reasons? I Sadly, I don't end up using the analog machine that much anymore. My partner Bart uses it all the time still. it's you know It's been a few months since I've fired it up actually so you um, do but, you do use pro tools for the most yeah part. i'm mainly using pro tools okay now and uh yeah one thing that's a, a little unusual about this that i told you about before uh, i have a separate mastering room here so i tend to shuttle my computer setup back and forth between the two rooms which is why I, why i work on a laptop um not always so convenient to work on a, on a laptop with a smaller screen but I've kind of gotten used to it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I really like about it is that I have it off to the side. So when I am facing the board, I, I turn uh, you know 90 degrees and face the board. I don't have a huge screen that I'm looking at. It's like my attention is really all about what I'm hearing on the speakers. And so I, I suppose in a way that kind of minimizes, well, it certainly minimizes the eye strain in, in my life unless I'm doing a lot of editing. But it's... Uh, it kind of minimizes the impact that the computer has in my recording world and allows me to to really focus on just the sound that's happening and not be looking at the screen all the time. So you're basically using it as a tape machine. Yeah, pretty much. And not, like some people really kind of focus in on everything happening within Pro Tools and the screen, and but it seems like your focus of attention is more around the board and and the outboard gear. And even the yeah. playback, when you bring the playback back, do you bring it out on the board? Or do you... Oh, yeah, always on, always on the board. So, yeah, I, I guess you could say that's that's a little bit of an unusual thing. I mean, the other thing about this studio is that we don't have outside engineers here because between Bart and I, we both pretty much keep it booked up. And it's not really laid out in a standard way that, you know, where someone else or you could just come in and just start working mm -hmm. it's not like a, a real studio in that way <laughs> <laughs> that has its pluses and minuses and the other thing is that's unusual about here is that a lot of stuff doesn't even go through a patch bay because i i really like to just patch stuff direct whenever possible but if it's just you working that that seems totally doable yeah yeah it's totally doable and it's uh you know it's a little eccentric and cranky probably but i like the way that it sounds well and then I mean, you don't have to deal with the patch bay. Right. Keeping a patch bay up, maintaining all that that comes with the patch bay. Don't have to deal with that. I mean, that's a whole separate yes, it is. expense. <laughs> and one more thing to go down. Yeah. Um, do people come in and, and, you know, question particular pieces of gear and say, really, we're going to record here on this or... In terms of, no. you know, do they criticize, you know, oh, you mean you don't have the latest Pro Tools HD setup? What, uh, how come? No, no one's ever asked me that. I'm kind of surprised that they haven't. But I, I only ask because, you know, you, there's so many, you know, musicians coming in with, as we discussed earlier, just partial knowledge of recording. Yeah. And, 
Well, I would love to have an HD system, but I'm not going to spend $15,000 on it or whatever. Yeah. Whatever seems, it is now. It just seems ridiculous. But I guess it all depends on one's workflow. Why do you keep doing this? Just out of curiosity. What else am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Brain surgery. I mean, I was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was in the, in the record business for years. I worked at Tower Records and I worked for a record distributor. I mean, the record business is kind of gone yeah. too. And I was, I was good at that. I was like a good clerk and I, I edited the newsletter at Down Home Music and I was a good editor. It's just really hard for me to imagine ever having a job again. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I probably will have to have a job again someday. Well, how do you... <laughs> With that in mind, what what is your your financial philosophy in regards to this? And I mean, you look several years out. I mean, do you ever think, oh, I'll retire someday, or or I'll stop doing this and I'll just go golfing, or I don't know what people do when they retire. <laughs> but what what are your thoughts on that? And how do you how do you manage like? Do you have an, a like some people like the dollars come in 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 the in their recording world and the dollars just immediately go out to buy the next thing and it's just like a constant like you know uncomfortable position financially for some people and some people deal with it differently and deal with it a little more I don't know conservatively so when it comes to money what what do you how do you deal with it well yeah I mean I think most people who start studios love gear. <laughs> And it's a great way to, you know, buy all the gear that you want to get, want to have, and write it off on your taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's just a reality. Um, I'm fortunate because I, I, I worked for an electronic musician for many, many years doing uh, technical articles and gear reviews. And most of the stuff in here, not the vintage stuff, but most of the stuff uh, I reviewed and tested pretty thoroughly and then i thought okay this is a good this is a good piece of gear i'll i'll get this at my discount and and i really haven't ended up buying much gear since then um i have all all the stuff i need i have way more microphones than i could ever use and actually way more preamps than i could ever use at once Mm -hmm. so i don't really look forward to having to buy much more gear ever that's great i wish i wish uh I think I, I'm getting to that point. That's a really good point to be at, but it takes you know takes twenty twenty five years. <laughs> it's kind of like alcoholism. It's like, sure, it's like you know, but I've it's... partied all I want to party, and now I'm ready to you know like chill out and stop drinking. Well, it's like now I'm ready to chill out and stop buying and just. Well, it's like yeah, you you find that one brand of Scotch Ile whiskey that you really like. It's like okay, I'll just stick with this. I'll yeah. just drink this every day. <laughs> this $85 bottle of scotch. This I could still be an me. alcoholic, but I'm just going to drink this scotch. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's that's one thing that's a little unusual about what goes on here is that we don't really have new stuff coming in. I mean, every everything here works great for me, and I have more than I could ever use. Uh, that takes I, a lot of discipline from a lot of people or for yeah. a lot of people. Well, I'm, and I'm also an electric guitarist, and I haven't bought a guitar in a really long time i mean i have like 10 amps and like 15 guitars and 10 pedals and i'm happy with all that stuff and i don't feel like i need anything else how does one get to that i'll just say that's a zen thing you have to go through a lot of really crappy gear (laughs) okay and then find the stuff that you like and 
yeah, it's like a, in guitar, I'm playing this not very expensive uh, DeArmond uh, X155. It's a it's a hollow body jazz guitar, kind of like a 135 or 375 kind of guitar. Big fat jazz body mm-hmm. guitar. And I play that on, you know, on every gig that I do, playing jazz, playing country, playing blues, whatever. And at some point, I'll probably get tired of that. And then I have a, a, you know, vintage Fender Strat and a Jaguar and some other stuff that I can play. So, Where do you think the, the concept of gear lust comes from, where you get something and then, oh, I just, I got to get something else. No, oh, I got to get something else. And do you think it's kind of a an ADD thing that some people have where they just can't stop and focus in on learning like I just interviewed Alan Farmello um who lives out in New York and Alan is kind of like you in this sense he's you know he he has this API console that he built out of 7600 channel strips and that's it I mean and he's got a pro tools rig and he kind of sticks to that he doesn't deal in plugins there's EQs on every, EQs and compressors on every channel of the API, and he just doesn't financially bury himself in debt to get crazy new gear all the time. So why do you think people fall prey to that? Speaking as as someone who was kind of on the inside of audio journalism, I have to say that I think a lot of it is really marketing driven and. You know, people that have been around for a while, it's like that, that gear less thing tends to fade. Not for everyone, but, you know, it sounds like for you and I, it's like, yeah, we, you know, we got the stuff that we need and probably don't have to be looking at the, you know, the newest U47 knockoff or, or whatever. And I, I think a lot of it is, it's just driven by advertising and, and this idea that if you have, some compressor that's based on something the Beatles used that you can get a really great sound just like the Beatles did. Hmm. I mean, I can't imagine why else. We, sh- we should have someone here that has some serious gear lust that can tell us. <laughs> yeah, that can present <laughs> that side of the argument. I mean, we're the, wrong, we're the wrong guys. But yeah, I think it's just, you know, how in the studio world, so much of it is is about the gear. And I just think that's... It's just a complete fallacy. It seems to be a major focus of our industry in general. On the surface, I mean, to the outsider, I imagine the outsider would look at us and go, oh, okay, it's all about who's working on the most popular hit records with the most popular artists. Right, and that's also advertising-driven. Yeah. It's that and the latest, greatest gear that's coming out. It seems like we don't explore enough of the techniques or really getting into i mean I, I have yet to see an article on you know let's let's re-examine this piece of gear that came out 10 or 15 or 20 years ago and really get into why is this piece of gear so sought after why do people really like this you know like kind of almost like a gear breakdown gear review yeah. of something old as opposed to okay the latest thing's out the press release is out let's talk about it the endorsements are out you know it's it's confusing, I think, for the up and coming person. It's like, oh, totally. I mean, I want to point out that in tape op, they will do that. They'll they'll review things a bit that have been around forever, and I think that's really, really, really cool. And they're oftentimes they are insightful reviews too. You could almost start a whole another 
you know, review section of a magazine or, or publication of some type that focused, that did reviews only on gear that has been out a minimum of five to 10 years. Yeah, but you would never get any advertising. I mean, that's the, that's the thing about the the magazine business. At okay, least, okay, there we go. You have to have advertising to fund it, right? And you know, there there could be an argument made that at least as far as microphones, that microphone technology has not really advanced very much in about since about 1964 <laughs> right or let's say the late 60s mm-hmm. since the introduction of solid state electronics old ribbon mics are still great old tube mics are still great you know u87s are still great so what can you do to you know to support this industry well there has to be new stuff with with splashy claims and all this sort of sexy cachet the, uh, around what new gear tends to have that you know we've all seen so many times. It's kind of like with records or music as the different formats have come out over the years. Consumers, oh, cassettes and or vinyl and CDs or eight tracks or back to vinyl or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, buy, rebuy, buy, rebuy. And now, you know, in, in the world of, I mean, shit, when I bought my first Pro Tools rig, it would only do 16-bit. 48k 44 and then of course oh well the new pro tools is coming out that does 24 bit i gotta get that and then high res and you know different converters it just it's we keep rebuying and rebuying shit it seems yeah well it's it's one of the central uh central principles of capitalism i mean it's like coca-cola there's you know it's just coca-cola in that bottle but they're always finding new ways to package it and there's a the new coke and then there's the classic coke you know, and now there's like the new U47, or you can get the classic U47. It's just, it's the same deal. It's how capitalism works to, to sell you the same thing over and over again. And after you do that long enough, you realize, oh, you know, the first U87 that I bought is actually pretty good. Or U47, <laughs> the U47 that that's been around since uh, 1962, and my mic fault. Jesus, still sounds pretty good. <laughs> So as far as like the advice to the up and coming student, because I think we have a lot of students that listen to the podcast. Uh-huh. I get a lot of teachers sending me emails going, your podcast is a, you know, it's a part of our curriculum. Oh, excellent. Or a part of our, you know, our classroom or whatever. So to those students in regards to gear and, and you know, owning a bit of gear can be advantageous, I would say. Would you agree? Absolutely. And it's fun. And it's fun. (laughs) And it gives you something to talk to other engineers about. So what's the line not to cross? Well, here's the thing that that I always say. And having been a reviewer, you know, I've gotten a lot of inquiries right along this line of of like, you know, oh, should I get this $100 Chinese microphone or this $100 Russian microphone, you know? The thing that I always tell people is don't buy the cheapest thing. Buy something really good, save up your lunch money, get something that you know, not that you know, but that you have a reasonable expectation that you will want to keep and treasure forever and pay the extra money to get it when you're getting into it. Because then, I mean, number one, you'll end up losing less money of like, selling some trying to sell some piece of crap gear that nobody wants number two you increase your chances of 
being where I am right now in my studio where I have the stuff that I need because I got really I got really good stuff. I mean, I got I bought way more stuff than I actually ever needed. <laughs> can do you think can that apply to plugins as well? It looks to me like they're going to find a way to keep selling you the same plugins and making the old ones obsolete. You you probably have a better perspective than I do on that cuz I don't mm. use a lot of plugins. I actually don't own any any outside plugins. I just tend to use what I've got. I mean, that's a good thing about analog tape, really. It's not going to change. I mean, it's it is what it is and yep. there's just a different still format. around. <laughs> now, I guess there could be an argument for saying, you know, I mean, I know guys that held on to ADATs for the longest time. I know people that continue to hold on to ancient Pro Tools rigs that still run. I guess at their core, if you have a Pro Tools rig that is like, I don't know, Pro Tools 5, Pro Tools 6, if you have to interface with somebody who operates in Pro Tools 10, 11, or 12, then you're going to have to figure something out. But it gets, yeah, it gets a little finicky. But I mean, I, mean I, I had a version of Pro Tools 8 that I loved, and I actually had some some wave, Waves plugins in that that were really, really good. And if if I had a laptop that it would still run on, I would still be using Pro Tools 8 and those same same plugins, and I'd be perfectly happy. <laughs> but but I that's, mean, that's not going to keep Avid and, and Waves in business. Right, but it could keep you in business. Well, I'm still in business. Oh, yeah, that's true. But I mean, <laughs> you just like this tape machine sitting here, there could be an ancient computer sitting here running a Pro Tools rig, really. Yeah, well, I use an ancient computer in my mastering room. What do you use? It's a, uh, it's a blue and silver G4. It's like 15 years old. It won't connect to the internet. It, all it does is it runs peak. It runs a two-channel peak for mastering, and that's all it has to do, and burn CDs. That's all it has to in do. In jam. Well, that's great. Yeah, and it's still going. And it's probably paid for a million times over. One million times. One Matt. million times. One million. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Mm, Evil. Dr. Evil. Do your pinky. Um, yeah, so so when we get into the, the computer world, I mean, this this idea of, you know, don't buy cheap stuff, just buy stuff that lasts forever. Well, nothing's going to last forever in the computer world. Sorry to say, kids. So don't, you know, don't get too attached to your laptop. <laughs> well, I guess this goes to something Alan Farmello talked about is in that people, we, we, and we had this discussion about people expecting everything to multitask. And, you know, I see several devices here that they just do one thing and that's all they do. And they do it pretty well. So I guess that's the, the quandary. If you're, if you're buying into a computer setup, which... I would say 9.9 out of 10 people these days would be buying a computer setup if if we're talking about, say, a student. Because they're dependent upon Ableton, Pro Tools, blah, 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 blah. But if you're a studio owner, it's a different thing. Uh, And I guess there's different categorizations of studio owners. You and Bart operate as an island, really. You're not dependent upon outside engineers to to pay your bills. And when you are dependent on outside engineers, that's when you have to kind of buy to cater to those outside engineers. But you don't have to do that. You just this is like your clubhouse, and you can yeah, build it as exactly you right. <laughs> build it as you want. Really, you know, you can keep it as you want. You can have the gear that you want. You don't have to upgrade because 
stuff works. Yeah, it's it's a unique place to be. And I, I realize now you're asking me about, yeah, kind of about how, you know, what the next few years look like for me. And then we tangentialized away from that discussion. But uh, I was just thinking, you know, it may be that, I mean, I'm, I'm 58 years old and my hearing is still pretty good and, and my back is holding up. So, and I always tend to think kind of like five years ahead, like 10 years ago, I was thinking five years ahead and thinking, yeah, this home recording thing's really starting to take off. And probably in five years, the phone is just going to stop ringing. Well, fortunately, the phone is, is still ringing. But now I'm thinking, you know, five years from here, I'm going to be like in my mid 60s. And at some point, I think it's just not going to make sense for me to be trying to run a studio. I, I could prove myself wrong. But it, and then I'm thinking, just as we're, as we're sitting here talking, you know, the thing that I would love to do if I decide that, you know, I've I kind of had enough of this and I want to shut or Bart and I want to shut it down. We're both about the same age, so we'll probably cash out around the same time. I would love to like for the last year of my studio to just get rid of a bunch of stuff, have the the half inch two track and just say, okay, I got rid rid of a bunch of mics. I'm just going to use like these these five really incredible mics and everything we do is just going to be mixed to a half inch two track through a manly very moo compressor. You can come record here if you want to try that. That would be so much fun for me. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah. And you know, it's my clubhouse. I can do <laughs> I can do it any way I want to do it. So maybe maybe that's what the future will look like for me. I mean the the great thing about being a recording engineer these days is that you can go do it on a you know an island somewhere up in the San Juans in Washington State. You know you need a laptop and an interface and a couple mics. You could be you could go record Eskimos up in Alaska. I mean you can you can go anywhere and do anything that you want. And I think the the paradigm of the recording studio that's tied to a certain location and has a reputation and a lots of lots of platinum records is kind of a a pretty dead idea. I mean, I'm glad that there's fantasy and and Hyde Street are still around and those real historical places because that's a lot of fun. I mean, Sun Records is a lot of fun to go to, but there are a lot more creative ways to record than you know than having a a lease and a and a huge board that you're kind of stuck with and having to go there and sit in the same chair every day so get creative you know think about different ways to do it because it's real easy and it's a lot of fun and you can see the world yeah you can do that yeah you don't you don't you don't have to be as you say sitting in the same chair do it do, do i sense that that's something that you you want to do well i've done i've done some of that and yeah i would love i would love to do more of that I mean, I love to travel and I'm also a photographer and I've traveled a lot doing photography and stuff like that. Maybe I'll find a way to integrate all those, all those passions. Hmm. Well, cool. I think we've got some good stuff to inspire some folks. So I appreciate you taking the time to let me bend your ear a bit. (laughs) I, I, I really appreciate it's always nice when engineers have something to talk about with each other besides, you know, pain medications. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> your current your current pain medications. Right. 
you said something though that just as a parting thought, you know, your ears are good, your back is holding up. Those seem to be the two things that kind of could prevent you from continuing to, or any of us prevent you from continuing to do this. Because as long as you, you know, have a client base and uh, there's a, a need for people to record, if you don't have your back and your ears, you're hosed. Yeah, pretty much. And yeah, I mean, the other thing that I want to say that I forgot to say earlier, I think I got off on some sort of cynical tangent about something. The reason that I'm here is because I love music. I mean, you, you would be hard to pressed to meet anyone that loves music as much as I do. And I get to work with some of the world's greatest musicians here in the Bay Area. That's I'm very, very grateful for that. So, and plus, there's also just a fascination. I don't know if you. I'm sure you feel this way. Obviously, you're in this business. There's just a fascination with not just working with great musicians, but capturing what they do and helping them organize all of that, uh, those elements into something that others will appreciate. Just the just the act of doing it. But, oh, sure, and especially. There's those moments. It's like when you got a really good group of people and and everyone's recording together. You know, you don't have a lot of baffles. It's just like a. It's more like an old school recording. Everyone in the room, and it comes together, and you just feel that energy, and the the hairs on the back of your neck start to go up, and you think, "Yeah, this is this is the moment that makes everything worth it." This you know, is why when, I do this. When you got that spark, yeah. And I've I've had a lot of sparks here, and it's really been incredible. All right. Well, thanks, Miles. Thank you very much, Matt. It was a real pleasure. And thanks for listening. I have to pee so bad. <laughs> All right. There it is, Miles Boyson on WCA. We're out of time today, so uh, we'll see you next week, or you'll hear me next week. Thanks for being with us today. Be sure to check out the Sonarworks software, like I mentioned. And, uh, yeah, we'll chat next week. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.